0: 32 through 49. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these Father, it is an ominous thing over these last couple of months to come to the central reality of all existence. The cross of your eternal Son. So this morning, may we again, in our meditation upon it, See the beauty, the glory, the horrific wrath that we deserved. And that glorious gospel hope for all who will believe in this message. To the glory of your Son and to our eternal happiness, we pray. Amen. Over the last few sermons, as we've moved through the stations of the cross, hopefully many thoughts and feelings have arisen in our hearts, like grieving over our own sinfulness that put Jesus on the cross. Like the reality of God's holy, righteous judgment that required such a price as we have seen here in the Gospel of Luke at the expense of His Son. And that there would be a deep affection and thankfulness for the love of our Savior that He has for us that He went willingly laying down His life for sinners. And so this morning what I want to do is give one last overview to bring out four huge realities of what we have been seeing on the cross. What is it that has transpired in God on the hill of Golgotha and thus has affected sinners like us. The first thing that we see in the cross of Christ, and I believe we're meant to meditate throughout our lives upon it, is that what we have seen pictured is a display of our sinful hearts that Jesus was crucified by God's predetermined plan it was done through the hands of sinful men like us it is a display of the fallenness of the human race the history of the world is a brutal narrative of horrific evil of the systematic torture of dissidents in Saddam Hussein's regime over the last couple decades in Iraq, of the Soviet gulags of the 20th century, and of that system of government that systematically murdered at least 30 million people, of the Nazi death camps where 7 million were murdered. By the state. Of Chairman Mao's regime and cleansing of China, at least 60 million innocents murdered. Or of the senseless mass murder of children in a schoolyard or moviegoers by evil individuals. But all of those things, as evil as they are, nothing stoops as low as when we, creatures, killed the Creator who became a human being. You see, the awfulness and the wickedness of the vicious torture and mockery that we see on the cross is proportionate to the innocence and the righteousness of the victim. That's why every clear-thinking, moral person, when learning that a mob member was gunned down in the streets of Philadelphia, knows the difference between that and learning that a first grader was gunned down in the schoolyard by a crazy nut. Why? Because we know children are relatively innocent. Even though they are also born into sin. In Jesus alone, of every human being that has ever lived, is the only one who did not have sin. He didn't have a sin nature and he never sinned. And as Luke has been making crystal clear, even by the judgment of Pilate and Herod and the centurion at the cross, this man is innocent of any wrongdoing. As the Holy Spirit put it through the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 7, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. But even more than this man's innocence was that the person, the human person we're talking about was uncreated, without beginning, infinitely glorious, the second person of the Holy Trinity who came down and became one of us. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, who though he was in the very form or nature of God, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, meaning willingly, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. The horrificness of the evil done to Jesus is the chasm is nowhere close to all the evils of the world because of His righteousness, His purity, and His eternality. And that's why Jesus said in John 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment that light, that's Himself, light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But that darkness of the human soul, its wickedness, hit its apex in the mocking, belittling crucifixion of God the Son. And so God, as we saw, sent darkness over the whole land from noon to 3 p.m. The Gospel portraits are unfolding in historical detail what we sinners did to the Creator who stooped to become one of us. As we look at the cross, it is a mirror that's reflecting the depths of our sinfulness. One contemplation that the cross is meant to bring about constantly is a reflection on our own hearts realizing the truth of Ephesians 2 that we all by nature were born as children of wrath the second thing that Golgotha Did is that it not only pictured, but the crucifixion of Jesus was itself actually God's holy anger, justice against sinners. All of us who have been born with a sin nature, we so easily play down the truth of God's wrath, of His holy, righteous judgment against sinners. And part of the evidence of our sinfulness is that we tend to feel and to think, I'm not really that bad. Come on. And that leads us to ignore God's wrath. It leads us to not really believe or understand why God would be so bent out of shape in our sinfulness. In popular American evangelicalism, even for those who still believe in the biblical doctrine of an eternal hell, often never speak about it. The mantra goes in present day Christianity no, 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 no don't do that God is love and let's just say that it's true God is love and he is holy and he is just and he is wrathful there's no contradiction in God in that The problem is that though it's true, God's not only love, His love as we see in the cross is really deep. But the true biblical love of God in Jesus Christ makes no sense apart from God's just wrath. You just take out a concordance of the Bible and a quick glance will let you know that God's anger and fury and wrath are spoken about more than the love of God. Just just a taste. The prophet Nahum, chapter one verses two to six, says The Lord is a jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Now don't say, well, come that's the old testament. Okay, just turn to the new. Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter one verses seven to nine. And on that day, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Paul writes in Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In Romans 2 he writes, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath then God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In Romans 12.19, he writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, because it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, and We are to wait for His Son, from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. And here's the cross. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. In Revelation 6, John writes, And they will be calling to the mountains and the rocks Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of Jesus, the Lamb.
1: For the great day
0: of wrath has come, but who can stand? In Revelation 16, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. That's that's enough to get that point across. Nothing less than the death of this perfectly righteous and innocent man was required to save anybody from God's wrath. Adam, the first man, that is, Adam, the first representative, sinned on behalf of every one of us. And God sent His Son, Christ, as the second Adam. As the second representative who lived the perfect, sinless, human life before the Father for all who will have Him. But He wasn't just a perfect, sinless, human being but he was the creator he was the uncreated eternal one who existed with the father and thus he descended the infinite staircase to become one of us And that descent that humiliation that substitutionary sacrifice, that experience of Jesus' human soul and body from the divine nature being turned away from Him, where He cried, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Nothing less could actually satisfy the full Wrath of God against millions upon millions upon millions of persons who sinned ten thousands of times. But because it was that man, it is far more than sufficient, than the punishment that all of our sins deserve. And that means if you have come into actual union with Christ, by the Holy Spirit coming into your life and spiritually raising you from life to death, then you will escape the wrath to come. That's the gospel. That's what Paul means in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about when he wrote in Romans 5 verse 9. Since therefore we have now been made righteous or justified by Jesus' blood much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. You see, to the extent we do not understand this biblical doctrine, it is so clear if we just read the words of the wrath of God, is to the extent we don't really understand the love of God for sinners. God's wrath was manifested in the execution of Jesus by the Roman government. And as He hung, the divine nature forsook the human nature of Jesus as a substitutionary Lamb where our sins were imputed to Him. The crucifixion is the ultimate display of God's love towards sinners. That's the third main truth of the cross. God's desire to never deny Himself, to never deny His Godness, His holiness, His justice, That desire, coupled with His desire to love sinners, made a way for Him to satisfy His justice, uphold His justice, and at the same time reconcile wrath-deserving sinners, so that He would then adopt them as sons, and His daughters in order to lavish them with His love forever and ever and ever. That's what the cross is. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Watch the connection. Why? Because while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He prayed, Father, if it be Your will, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not my human desires that are coming up right now at the dread of what is coming, but Your will be done. He got the answer. There was no other way. And so Jesus drank the cup of God's holy wrath. Don't miss it. Because of His love for Peter or James Or Aurelius Augustine? Or Martin Luther? And If you belong to him, put your name right there. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, writes about the love of God. Quote, God's love is an exercise of His Goodness towards sinners. As such, it has the nature of grace and mercy. It is an outgoing of God in kindness which not merely is undeserved but is actually contrary to what we sinners deserve. For the objects of God's love are rational creatures who have broken God's law, whose nature is corrupt in God's sight, and who merit only condemnation and final banishment from His presence. It is staggering that God should love sinners, yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely and one would have thought unlovable. There was nothing whatever in the objects of His love to call forth God's love. Nothing in man could attract or prompt God's love. Love among us humans is awakened by something in the one we love. But the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused. God loves men and women because He has chosen to love them. not just in general. The love of God in Christ is very personal and individual. That's why Paul will write to fellow Christians in Ephesians 1 these words. O blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, He has chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. In love... He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. To the praise of His glorious grace which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So think about What's going on on that hill of Golgotha is Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, now if you have come to Jesus, you got an idea, maybe when that happened, maybe you don't if you came young, but if you think about your coming, To faith in Jesus. Where your life was changed. Can y'all go back 2,000 years to the cross again? It is what we have been seeing that is the cause of your coming to Jesus. He purchased it. Your coming to Jesus was the result of God's loving you while you were yet sinful. The cross is about God loving you, believer, very particularly. That's why Paul will write a letter to us Christians Now, he was writing to the ones that were in Thessalonica back in the 50s, the first century. And he says this, Oh, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, Christians, who are beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and your belief in the truth. God's love for believers is so deep, it took the death of his Son. And no wonder Paul, therefore, exclaims in Romans chapter 2 But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Made us alive together with His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you know the love of Jesus? Do you know and trust His love? For you. His becoming one of us, his identifying with us, his suffering for us, his dying on behalf of us is meant to be the driving force of the Christian's life of sanctification throughout. Listen to what Paul tells us who believe in Ephesians 3. So that Christ may live in your hearts through faith. That you, believer, being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ it surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Christian life is about not just coming to faith, but pursuing to know Him personally, to grasp the impossible, yet more and more every day, of how deeply He loves you. And not only that, we are left in sinful bodies with a sinful soul and sinful desires, though we are born again. Has anyone experienced that? Golgotha is the centerpiece of how you are to wake up every day and fight sin and temptation that so easily knocks you down. Because Christ lives in you. You're like a schizophrenic. Why do I desire so much to do what, in another sense, I don't want to do? Why did I again fail to do? Oh, what I know I want to do, but I don't. Fight it. Here, Paul, how do you do it, Paul? How do you fight lust? How how do you fight not wanting to forgive those who keep destroying your ministry? How do you fight flying off the handle? Or when you do, Paul, how do you fight condemnation of your soul? Here's his strategy. Galatians 2. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. You see, my strategy is I have been crucified Oh, it was central to Him. You've got to understand, Paul, unlike us, Paul saw thousands of persons crucified living in the Roman Empire and traveling. I have been crucified with Christ there is no longer I who live but it's Christ who lives in me so when I wake up every day the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith trust in the Son of God. Now he could have stopped there, but he had a vision in his head. I live by faith in Jesus who loved me and gave himself up on a cross for me. So when I'm tempted, to hold a grudge. I close my eyes and I pray. And I look at the meaning and the reality of the cross of my Savior who loved me. And I see my sin put Him there. And He died to save me from what I deserve. And He told me Give them. But take your own revenge, but trust God and leave it into his wrath. So I live by faith, I live by trust in the Son of God who loved me. The cross of Jesus is the proof of God's love for every believer. And no matter what happens in your life, the cross in your cancer, in tragedy, in relationship pain, in your own battles and losses of sin, the cross is the proof of God's love for you. Even if the state executes you like they did Paul or like they did Peter. See, the apostle John who was standing there at the foot of the cross that day, he would later write as an older man, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In what, John? That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The bloody substitutionary sacrifice bearing God's wrath against us. That's the God. And so what we've seen so far then in this sermon is, yes, we have all been born into sin, and by nature we have all been children of wrath, and the sinfulness of our hearts was on display in the cross of Jesus. And yes, God's perfect, holy, just wrath was released upon Jesus. On the cross and yes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believes in him will not perish under God's wrath, but will have eternal life. And all of that is based on nothing any of us can do. It is simply because of God's great love and mercy and it cost him dearly but it's free to anybody who would receive it as the gift that it is which leads to the final thing of the cross this love of God in the crucifixion of Jesus is revealed through the man, Jesus Christ. The man who suffered and died. Now first, see, it is a jump to believe the gospel. what I mean is this, I mean what the New Testament teaches, that the natural human mind left in the state in which we're born will never truly believe the gospel. It will either appear to be foolishness, or it will be a stumbling block to our pride, and will never believe." See, it is a jump to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. It's a jump to believe that on the cross, really, come on, the sins of all who would ever believe were atoned for in that one man It's a joke to believe that a dead man for at least 40 hours dead and hard was resurrected to new human bodily life and walked and taught and ate fish. But the real difficulty in the Gospel lies not in the atonement or the miracles that Jesus performed, or in the resurrection, but the real difficulty lay in the incarnation of Christ. See, the staggering Christian claim is that Jesus, that carpenter from Nazareth, was the God-Man. That He, is the second person of the Holy Trinity who became something he wasn't previously. Human. But that person, without ever ceasing to be divine in nature, took another nature to his person called human. Nature. The Word, as John 1 says, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The eternal Son of the Father became a Jew in 4B. This is the real stumbling block of Christianity. And there is nothing in the fairy tales of the world, Peter Pan and Snow White, or you ever watch that new TV show, Once Upon a Time, puts them all together. There is nothing in any of those fairy tales that is as mind-boggling as this reality of the Incarnation. Christ, And it is at this juncture, the Incarnation, that many professing Christians prove themselves not to belong to Jesus Christ. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, Unitarians all fall off the platform of Christianity right here. When one goes off the track of God became man, that Jesus is that one person with two distinct natures that do not mix, it is from there that all the other biblical doctrines fall apart. But once the Incarnation is grasped, held to, though it is utterly incomprehensible, then the atonement and then the miracles of Jesus, then the resurrection from the dead and His promised future second coming make sense. And they are at the core of genuine believers' hope. See, if Jesus is the Creator of the universe, if He is God... The Son, well, actually, let me just say it. To you. If this is true in Hebrews 1, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the Heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins on the cross, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. See, if Jesus is that Creator, it's not so strange that the author of life would rise to new resurrection life from the dead. Actually, it's more strange that He would suffer or die at all. And if God the Son, in His human nature, did submit to death, then it is not a large leap of faith at all to believe that His death has saving significance for every person who comes to love Him. And so Jesus was a real, genuine human being. He wasn't cheating. And yet that same person was fully divine. He came to be one of us forever. To give his life as a ransom for many. And so, as we have contemplated what happened on that day on Golgotha, this real human being was weak. He was weak from his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, being dragged around in chains throughout that night, and beaten and slugged, and his scourging and The mourning, so much so that that human being could not carry His crossbeam all the way to the hill for the loss of blood and His weakness. Everything that those two thieves beside Him felt, He felt. And Jesus felt more. He felt the sting of the ridicule and the mocking as He hung there. And yet, this man, Jesus, entrusted his soul to God, his Father, as a dependent child. But the fact that the sovereign of the universe caused darkness to come over the land for those three hours says he was more than a mere man. As God, as the second person of the Trinity, as the Messiah, As the Savior, He could turn and look to a crucified dying man by His side and say, Today, you will be with me in paradise. As God became human, this man is the only innocent one. This man was more than a man who descended the infinite staircase. Therefore, His sacrifice, His punishment, was infinitely more than quadrillions of human beings, though there's not going to be nearly that many that have ever been created. Quadrillions of human beings and all the sin and the mockery of God they could ever commit. That's why the Apostle Paul will proclaim in Titus, He is our God and our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Anyone who denies Jesus' full humanity or full deity has denied the very essence of the Christian faith. This God man bore the sins of all who will be saved. He accomplished eternal salvation. And so the Apostle John later writes, having witnessed this crucifixion, if anyone does sin, and he's writing to you professing believers, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. The Righteous One. He is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus could not have been that propitiation if He sinned. If He had any blemishes, on His human soul, His human character, He would not have been the acceptable, unblemished Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But by His offering Himself, He fully abolished the Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrificial system because He fulfilled it. And so on the cross... Right before His death, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And The writer to the Hebrews sums it up this way in chapter 10. And every priest stands daily at His service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being worked upon, okay. sanctified. Is that you? Then you'll make it. Chapter 9, he writes, But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of of himself. We have all in here sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all come into this world born as children of Adam. Children of God's holy just wrath. The question is, since your birth, have you been united to the second Adam? Have you embraced that man, his perfect, righteous human life as your substitute before the Father? Have you embraced that? Yes, my sin was imputed to the second Adam on the cross, and it was dealt with. Oh, listen to the glorious words of John 1 To all who did. Receive Jesus, who believed in his name. God gave the right to become the children of God. Final thing to us who are believers Christian, have you grown cold in your love? For Christ. Are you losing the battle against constant sin? Go back to the cross often and take out the machine gun of Galatians chapter two, verse twenty and blast away at your sin, blast away at temptation, and you will lose battles. And as you lose battles, don't deny the gospel, but believe we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But take out Galatians 2.20, and blast away. I have been crucified with Christ. I am, this is what Paul means I am done with thinking that my performance will make me acceptable to God today. That's what he means. I died to the law. I'm crucified with Christ. I will stop stealing His glory. And I will believe how wretched I am in myself and how glorious His sacrifice was. And thus I will turn in my sin tomorrow. And I will say, Forgive me, Father. And I will believe He did. And I will blast away again when I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ in me, by the power of the Spirit and the life I now live daily. I live not by my works, but by trusting, in Jesus, the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Let's pray. Holy Father, we do sense the truth by the grace of the Spirit who is present here the depth of your love, you who did not spare your own son, but delivered him up for all of us Christians. And therefore, how in the world will you not freely give us all things to persevere in our love and trust in him to the end? Lord Jesus, Your salvation is beautiful in our eyes. To the glory of Your cross, will we, by the grace of Your hand, daily trust in You.